Yes, it costs money, but you look at what's happened in terms of quarterly results for Q3, especially for oil and gas have been, you know, really good. What if we take some of that and we put it towards capping off some of these wells that are spewing methane? There are solutions to these things. And I think as somebody, and I've been using this a lot recently, and maybe it's, it's because of the moment, but the question is, how do you eat an elephant? And it's piece by piece. How about we just start taking these pieces that we need to get at and just start breaking them down and getting at them and eating them and, and fixing these things. Welcome to Innovation Talks. Join us weekly as we discuss with distinguished industry guests how to refine and improve corporate innovation and new product development. Hosted by Paul Heller, Sophion Chief Evangelist. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Glad you could join us again. Back about a month ago, we had a podcast episode on sustainable innovation through green chemistry with Amy Cannon. And she cited an individual in a company that's doing a lot of leadership in terms of green chemistry. And we are so fortunate to be able to have Jeffrey Whitford join us today. Jeffrey is the head of sustainability and social business innovation and life science branding at Millipore Sigma. Before that, he was Sigma Aldrich's head of global citizenship. And when Merck acquired uh, Sigma Aldrich to form Millipore Sigma, he took the additional role of head of internal communications for Merck's healthcare business. So quite a bit of experience and, and, and certainly some fun titles in there. But what really separates Jeffrey apart is his commitment to use his career to make the biggest possible positive impact on people's lives. He has a passion for STEM education, and he's been an integral part of Millipore Sigma's work to enhance global access to science and education. He directs the company's largest corporate responsibility initiative called Spark. Uh, he's been recognized by Fast Company as one of the most creative people in business last year, and also the PRN News Corporate Social Responsibility and Nonprofit Awards selected him as its Professional of the Year. Wow. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. It's good to be here. I'm really glad you could join us. Where are you joining us from today? So I'm coming to you from St. Louis, Missouri in the U.S. And how's the, uh, the weather there? Is it fall? It is beautiful fall weather. We are actually having a great fall thus far. So I just got back from the U.K. three weeks ago. So I got okay. here just in time for the good weather to escape the heat. <laughs> good for you. Yeah. When I was researching and preparing, uh, there's one fact about you that stood out that I have to ask first. You once bought snake venom from a man in Louisiana. What kind of tagline is that? <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, it's one of the things that when that part of my career happened, I honestly thought it was like the end of my career. Um, I was asked to do a rotation in procurement. And that was not anything I ever thought would be a part of my professional journey. But looking back on it now, that was actually one of the best things that could have happened because I actually learned how our business operated. I functionally really began to understand how everything kind of connected together through this role in procurement. And it also allowed me to do some interesting things like buy snake venom from a man in Louisiana for researchers who are doing research uh, on a variety of things. And so you know, some of the things that you would never have imagined made possible, science is there to, to, to do that. And you have to yeah. have some very interesting materials to make it happen. Yeah. Now, 
I've never met anybody who was the head of global citizenship. Tell me about that role. I like it. Yeah, the title was amazing. And yeah. I think the, the thought pattern behind what we did when we named it was really this idea that behind the work that we want to do, it was about being a model citizen. What does it mean to be globally minded as a company and really take that from a personal aspect rather than just this you know, big corporation? And, and so that global citizenship department and role and team that we created was really focused on taking that kind of almost personal aspect into what we did, which was, I think at that time, very different than, you know, traditional efforts within that space. Yeah, that's really neat. And uh, clearly, uh, the commitment from from Sigma Aldrich kind of carried on into Millipore Sigma. So sustainability is a top topic globally. And I certainly, Merck is one of the key leaders. Uh, we've had uh, several podcasts where the name Merck has come up in, in positive light around sustainability. So tell us about what you do now. Yeah. So my role now is, I, I think, building on what the past almost decade plus has been. And it's really now about how do we scale and globalize even further and drive this into how we operate as a, as a company. And so, you know, for those of you who are listening in the rest of the world, um, and I say rest of the world, I use this in, in company terms. In the U.S. and Canada, our business is known as Millipore Sigma. In the rest of the world, we operate as Merck KGA Darmstadt, Germany. So there's a long history on the brand side of that. But this really showcases that we are a company that we've got people working in 66 countries, more than 50 some odd thousand employees for the entirety of the group. But in life science, more than 23,000 employees. So it's a big operational footprint which means that we need to drive sustainability both on the environmental and on the social side into how we do business and how we interact with our communities. So that comes through a range of things, you know, how we run our facilities and investing in energy efficiency and moving to renewables to how we design products and the materials we choose from them, how we package them, get them to customers, how our customers actually use them and, and doing that in a more sustainable fashion and then end of life. And then on the other side of the fence, and, and certainly I think equally as important, the investments we're making in our communities through investments with nonprofit organizations who are working to make sure that more people have access to high quality science education, especially those in underrepresented populations, girls in science, extremely important, as well as people of color so that there is more representation across the board. So for me, I am fortunate. I have what I think is one of the best jobs. It is diverse. It is uh, ever-changing. It's dynamic. I joked earlier this week, you know, we're kind of now the popular kids at the table because sustainability is such right. a, a hot topic. And I kind of liked when we kind of flew under the radar because we could get a lot done. Mm. But it really is a coming of age in terms of how this is being centered in the conversation and the importance it plays. And we need to make sure we have a strong approach that can back up the commitments we've made and certainly the, the requirement and the need for companies, countries, individuals to take action on, on the topic of climate change. Yeah, super. When you guys made the transition to be really focused on sustainability and, and what things did you learn? What kind of friction did you have? What kind of change, corporate change did you have to go through to be able to make that core to your all of your innovation efforts that you do? 
You know, one of the lessons that I think I learned is that we could help ourselves out a lot if we had clear operating frameworks to provide to people because sustainability is not a simple topic. You have people who, once you get into the details, it gets overwhelming because you're looking at really assessing all of these different variables. And so if we can provide a way and provide a resource to help support our team members, starting to use sustainability as a lens of the work that they do, whether that's in R&D or the packaging that we choose, all of those things, if we can provide them clear operating frameworks, to me, that has been a differentiator to make this more approachable, easier to access. And I think something that our employees can get behind because they see they see how we can do it and how they can be a part of it. Yeah. When we talked with Amy, she mentioned, we were talking about the 12 principles of green chemistry, which is something I know very well because she and I worked together on a project many years ago. And uh, we had a website called iSustain and unfortunately it didn't take off. And then she said, you guys have a website called Dozen. And I was like, oh, I got to find out more about that. Tell us about that. Dozen was a kind of a creation out of just curiosity. I was reading an article in Fast Company a long time ago now about how Nike was giving their designers tools to help them be more sustainable in their design. And so basically what they did was they had them do something, then they gave them this set and said, can you change what you did now using this information and then come out the backside with a more sustainable product? And what was interesting was they sat back and thought, and really at the core of that was it was about data. It was about having data about the different inputs that they were using so they could choose different materials that had a smaller footprint. And I said, we have got just data everywhere. There's data left, right, and center. And how could we take this, this approach of the 12 principles and apply data to it so that we could make an approach that would quantify and really make the, the 12 principles practical. And so that's where it started. And we we started with one of my team members and an intern, and that process just kind of continued, you know, year after year where we would iterate, a new intern would come in and help us drive it a little bit forward until the point where we felt like we had a, I would say a solid operating model. And we used it internally to be able to quantify the manufacturing improvements we were making to products using the 12 principles. And for me, that was a, it was an important piece of work because I go back at the end of the day and my, I would say my accountability is to our stakeholders, our customers, to provide them with data, to make better choices, to do the science that they're doing in a more sustainable fashion. To do that, you have to have data. And so this was a first, I would say, first step in that journey to getting them that data. And, and now that tool has changed and we've evolved it. So now it's customer facing. So our customers are able to go in and use it and do process calculations. And I would say we're also, you know, we're on the 2.0 version right now, but I, we have mapped out versions that probably take us at least to six with new functionality and feasibility that adds to the system to make it hopefully even more useful uh, to add more dimensions like CO2 footprint. You know, that is another, you know, another characteristics that people are going to be using to make these determinations. So for me, it, it's been a really interesting journey and it has happened with a lot of people making, you know, some really clever and, and out of the box thinking in terms of how you could make a system like this work because 
you know, there are few tools like that that exist or, yeah. or had existed at that point. I remember when we were working on this some years ago, some of the 12 principles were not every company agreed exactly what the formulas were, what the calculations were, what the what actually drove that characteristic value. Uh, has that now become more standard or is there still a variation where each company is going to want to do its own kind of interpretation of the data, of the numbers? I think that's the beauty of the 12 principles. And one of the things that we've identified through that is you know, depending if you're focused on waste or you're focused on safety or you're focused on, you know, energy efficiency, you can use the 12 principles to then kind of tease out which one is important for you. And with the approach that we took, each principle has an algorithm and that algorithm then gives you a distinct number for that sector or that's that principle. But it also, we give an overall. And I think one thing that we've found is that there are certain principles that are really hard to measure because the information isn't necessarily always there, like pollution, real-time pollution prevention, number 11. That one is a bear in terms mm. of figuring out how do you measure that because most people don't have that type of, of sophisticated equipment. But I think what we have also found too is by putting this out into the scientific space, we're also helping to start a conversation to iterate those calculations forward. So in our minds, this is not a fixed finished tool. It is really a scientific conversation that's going to evolve. And as you get more people into the conversation, the system itself is going to become better and richer because we are working on stakeholder dialogue to then collectively improve it you know, gain kind of, I would say, consensus and then iterate it forward and then keep repeating that process. So for me, it really is about starting the conversation. Yeah. You mentioned your one of the successes was quantifying the improvements. So uh, there's nothing like real data. So what type of improvements uh, did, did you guys see? So what we found when we introduced this into the scientific community was that it's a new concept that then sparks interest. And with that interest means that people start having discussions about what is included in that. Are the calculations right? And I think this is exactly where we need tools like this to go because you need, it can't be one person's version or a couple of people's vision of what this means. But if you get more minds around the topic, thinking about it, adding to it, it's going to strengthen the tool and strengthen the approach in terms of quantitative analysis and how we can actually get data in people's hands so that they can make better choices when doing their scientific research. Yeah. And you mentioned, use the word scientific community. Is that other companies like yourselves? Is it experts in the industry? Who, who are those scientific community members? Absolutely. So what we've seen is that, you know, we go to conferences and we talk about dozen. And it's interesting because the most often asked question that we get is, why are you doing this for free? And I think this starts that whole component about what that community is, because it is practitioners. It is people who have an interest in this topic who, you know, are still, if you think about it, um, on an innovation curve track, these are the very early adopters. These are the people, if you think about sustainability, they are on the front edge of this because that tidal wave has not hit in the scientific community as much as it has, let's say, in other places. And I think that's because of the, com the complexity of the topic. But that is people who are doing research at academic institutions. 
Those are people who are at other pharma, biotech type of companies. So it really is a mix of players across the industry who are engaged in this and thinking about it. So it represents you know, a wide geographic reach. It is a global tool. It's not just something in the US or in one country. It's really global, but it spans different layers of that from people in academia and research to industry. Yeah, exciting. Uh, and you also mentioned earlier that your customers are using it. How are they using it? So I think one of the things that was kind of an unintended outcome of what happened was you know, we looked at it in a very, I would say, specific lens. And this goes back to it's great to have other people engage with it because then they find other uses or ways that can be used. Our thought pattern was really, how do you get this in the hands of a customer who is doing a process? And they can look at the process and quantify the process and see how they can adjust the process to decrease the footprint. So when you take that, it's probably more in what you would consider an industrial approach. But what we have actually seen is while it is being used there, it's also heavily being used in the academic community. And we're seeing more and more academic institutions actually use this in their teaching curriculum, which I think is a really remarkable thing that I just didn't see coming. But the importance there, and one of the things that I think we're key believers in is we have to make some adjustments into what is being taught, how we're teaching students to ask questions, to have different tools to help them with the analysis from an environmental standpoint. Like what is the impact? What is the footprint of, of the work that they do? And so the application of Dozen within this is one of those first steps uh, that gives students more tools, helps them ask a question, but it brings up the point of quantification in their studies. And I think that, if, if nothing else, is probably one of the most interesting and, and valuable components of this. Yeah, that's really exciting. When, when we spoke with Amy Cannon, she, in a similar vein, said many of the same things. And I just love the quote she said. She used to think chemistry was the problem, but chemistry is the answer. I thought, that, yeah, that's a great way to think about it. Absolutely. I think one of the things that you see, and, and, and I say this, um, you know, you could, you could look at this and be like, yes, you work in that space. But like, let's remember, I am not a scientist by training. Chemistry scares the heck out of me because I don't, I don't fundamentally get it in a way that I am like, yes, I understand the concepts and the concrete nature of what's happening there. Like a person like Amy does. But what I do, I think what I have realized over time is that while I don't necessarily understand it, I do understand that there is a ton of research happening within it and there are solutions to be had within that. So I completely agree with that perspective is that there are opportunities for us to solve better using science. And I think that's what we have to remember is that when you start asking yourself questions, that's when you get to some really interesting answers. Yeah. And if you step beyond dozen and you think of some of the other things you were talking about, just sustainability in general, you spoke about packaging, distribution, end of life. What are some of your thoughts in those areas? You know, I think one of the things that we think about is scientists have to have more tools. They have to have more tools in the toolbox that decrease the footprint. So one piece is how do you get more tools that have a smaller footprint that really change the paradigm of scientific research? And so that's one thing that we're focused on. Packaging. A week does not go by where I don't get some type of social media communication from a customer who 
didn't have a great experience. You know, they got three boxes with a single product in each one of the boxes with a ton of packing material. You know, sometimes that's driven by transit regulations and they don't understand that, which is fine. You know, we can, we can work through those situations. Other times we just didn't do the best job that we could. There are room, there's room for us to improve and to have and give our customers a better experience, which will also simultaneously decrease the environmental impact of the product getting to them and putting more decision-making in the customer's hands. You know, one of the things that we see is everybody wants everything right away, but the question is, do they actually want everything right away? Or is that just kind of the norm that we've gotten used to and we don't question it? Because if you change the paradigm on maybe a shipping timeframe, you can also change the footprint of what it takes to get the shipment to the customer. And I think those are the questions now as we have conversations with our customers, you start asking and kind of pushing those boundaries to see what the response is. And it is, it is very interesting. On end of life, you know, without question, I think plastics become this like Jekyll and Hyde of the world. And, you know, I think they have gotten a reputation that kind of brought on themselves. It's not a helpful, it's not a good look when you look at some of these things. When you get into more specialized applications, I think then you have to start asking some more detailed questions. But ultimately, what needs to happen is how do we figure out how to use more of these materials back into the system? Because in certain instances, plastics are the answers for what is being done. Life cycle analysis will point to this. There has been detailed work done on that. But that doesn't mean that just because the life cycle analysis is positive, there isn't more work to be done to figure out, are there better ways to use the materials after they get recycled and put back into something to really look at a more circular approach for how we can be dealing with, you know, a growing area of waste within scientific research. And I think, you know, those types of questions become important ones for us to dedicate time and energy and resource to so that there are global solutions uh, for these challenges. You know, right now, let's take recycling. We've got a, a solution in the United States. That is not the answer. I need solutions that span the entire world, that give people access to be able to deal with this waste stream that is particularly challenging because even though it's plastics, it's a very specialized kind of plastic. It's a mixed plastic. So there are multiple types of plastics that are typically making up one or two pieces of you know a material that a customer is ordering. And then on top of that, They've typically been exposed to some type of hazard. So you have to mitigate multiple challenges, unlike if you were just trying to recycle, let's say, a soda bottle, for instance. One single type of plastic, there are a ton of them out there. And so there's less of an economic motivation. And, and that is the story, I think, at the end of this, is right, economics. How do the economics work? And can you make this something that is affordable and approachable to utilize that waste stream into something else? If we can crack that one, that's where you see kind of a watershed moment. Could you imagine if, if today's trash is somebody's tomorrow's raw materials and actually a demand for it? Could you imagine that? Well, and I think that's, this is the important thing, Paul, is that as industry, we have to start asking ourselves, can we use something else into these things instead of just relying on what we've always done, which is typically virgin material? 
if there was more people asking for this recycled material to come back in, you start to create the market. And once the market starts getting created, the prices come down because there is the necessary demand. So there's more people trying to get into the space. And you know you can have your, your debate on capitalism, but this is where it works. But you have to have the people who are willing to say, we're going to start to figure out how to get that in. And that takes an effort and a commitment to basically put aside what you have been doing and the ease and probably the cheap nature of it to do something that temporarily will probably be a little more painful, a little more challenging, a little more expensive, but in the long run is going to help us move down the road towards where we need to be. Yeah, and I think the good news is there's a lot of young people in universities or not even in the universities yet who, for them, this is a really big topic, right? very important. Absolutely. I mean, I think you see what has happened with a variety of big conventions happening, certainly with COP26 going on. Yeah, uh, and exactly. And uh, certainly the, the protest happening there, mainly driven by younger people. I read a really interesting article just recently that actually the most, I would say, fervent environmental protesters are actually young women. They're driving that. And the comparison they were giving that was a majority of the people at COP26 are stale and male, right? Wow. Wow. <laughs> Old men. Yeah. That was the perspective they had. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other perspective of this and the people who are really fighting against this, young women. And I think that does highlight this sea change that's happening and the expectations of the younger generation because they have not had maybe something that was a little bit more balanced, right? You know, after you get to a certain age, I'm not going to say what that age is, you are able to look back and be like, well, I remember when it was this, and it doesn't feel like it's changed that much. But we, our memories are short. We don't really have a good sense of that. Whereas these younger people, all have they known, you know, is a lot of chaos. And it's amplified further by social media and by the 24-7 news cycle. So the perspective has shifted and changed. And maybe that's exactly what we needed to really spur action in a more meaningful or quicker way. Otherwise, we continue to slowly decline and slide into a, an even more challenging situation. Yeah, this was this is good because you just circled back around and linked what you originally said about the environmental side with the social side. I mean, you just, you just nicely uh, closed that because I think we as professionals working on innovation – you know, we, we have to also think about the social side of, of, of sustainability as well. So you mentioned, you know, COP26, the UN Climate Summit right now uh, in Glasgow. Are you seeing climate and sustainability be linked in the right way? What's your thoughts on, on kind of what's going on there right now? Non-political. <laughs> right, non-political. We'll stay out of those waters because that's a, that's a yeah. you know, oof. Yeah. You know, I, th I think it's interesting. I think the the fact that the conversations are happening are great. I think you have seen progress that is meaningful. Of course, you've got a lot of people who say it's not enough. We haven't, you know, we haven't achieved what we need to do coming out of that. I think that's going to happen regardless. <laughs> Everything could be solved, and somebody's like, it's not enough. We need to do it faster. Right. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, I think that's that's the issue here. Right? Is how do you navigate and say was something meaningful achieved. And I think when you look at some things like 
the commitments are nice. I'm always one who I want to see action. I could actually care less about the commitments. I want to see people make moves on this. You know, every time I see a story about uh, a methane plume being spotted, I'm like, this is frustrating because I feel like we could solve this. Yes, it costs money, but you look at what's happened in terms of quarterly results for Q3, especially for oil and gas have been, you know, really good. What if we take some of that and we put it towards capping off some of these wells that are spewing methane? There are solutions to these things. And I think somebody, and I've been using this a lot recently, and maybe it's it's because of the moment, but the question is, how do you eat an elephant? And it's piece by piece. How about we just start taking these pieces that we need to get at and just start breaking them down and getting at them and eating them and, and fixing these things? And I think that's the thing that I have always, I think by nature, and there is our, our state motto in Missouri is show me. And I think that has really probably inundated who I am as a person because that's <laughs> like, show me the results. That's what I'm interested in. Show me not you talking about a commitment, but actually doing said commitment. And I think that's where we're going to have people start to feel like they're being heard because they see change happen and action happening. It, but it, once again, you know, I think some of this comes down to disrupting the traditional uh, incentive and economic systems that we have in place and realize there may be some temporary pain. But if you look at what happens with all of these knock-on costs from climate, from other things, you know, at a certain point, you, you get to the, there was a really great article about the cost of bearing power lines or the cost of doing repairs in Louisiana after all of these hurricanes keep coming through. And if you look at it by now, you know, just even from the past like five years, it would have been more cost effective to bury those power lines mm, than it would yeah. be to spend the money to do the repairs. And that's where we have, I think, very short minds in terms of total cost of ownership. And I think coming back to that and understanding how total cost of ownership affects these long terms, it changes it changes the equation. So that's I, I this is for me. How do we see action and thinking yeah. about things like total cost of ownership? Because you have to think, I think, from a business perspective, at least I will say, how does this work within a business environment as industry? And how do you make that case to drive that forward within your organization? And and that typically has to be it because that's where the costs really start to manifest. Well, I'm sure glad we have people like you and companies like Merck thinking about this, promoting it, being active, uh, showing leadership. It's really great. Um, let's say for the average innovation worker, we me you mentioned the data they need, the tools they need. Uh, where do you see things in five years? Uh, do you see that they may have, will they have the, the information they need or is that going to take longer? What's, what do you think there? This is the key crux of the question is, do you have the right information? And what you're going to start to see is a rush and a push to start being able to get that data and information. I think the challenge then comes along is how quickly can we increase the sophistication of data gathering for second, third, fourth tier supply chain components and those companies? Because unlike large companies like us, they don't have a me. 
not that having a meet would solve all the problems, but they don't have right. a sustainability person. They don't have teams who are focused on these types of, of issues. And if you don't have those types of people, it becomes even more difficult because you're not only, you know, typically you're the probably head of operations and the head of safety. And now suddenly you have to be the head of sustainability too. That's a lot to get your arms around. And we need to be realistic. These smaller companies are not just suddenly going to pop up sustainability departments out of nowhere. So how do we help those teams become more sophisticated in this and get them tools that makes this a bit easier because this is where it gets cumbersome. My hope though, is that we've seen substantial progress and you start getting people to a place where maybe they've got part of the scopes, right? Maybe they don't have all of scope three, but they're getting part of it to be able to understand areas where they can take action or how they can use maybe an incomplete data set to start making better decisions. So I think without question, and that's maybe a tricky one for scientists too, working with imperfect data and that quest for having everything so that you can, you know, it can be right, right? You can publish it. There's no questions about it. Well, we're never going to have that. And I think even when you look at some of the things, granted, there are, there are theories that have proved to be consistent throughout time, but if you look, I think, deep into a lot of these issues, the data does shift. There are new things that are found out that change the, the perspective of it. We, as the like greater scientific community, are going to have to get comfortable with that so that we can make and take an iterative approach and just try to make sure that we're still asking questions and improving as we go along. Uh, that was fantastic. I'm reminded of a quote very early in my career. I was walked into a customer's office and he had written on his board, you know, uh, progressive improvements better than delayed perfection. And it's so right. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. true. I think that's one thing over my career that I have just really recognized. And it's been a common theme. If you wait to have all of the things correct, good luck getting there. But if you can start just taking steps, it's amazing the progress you can make and what you can accomplish. And I mean, I think Dozen is a great example of that. Yeah. If we had absolutely. waited till we had everything, we probably would have never have gotten there. If we just said, we know that this isn't perfect, but we know that it's directionally correct, here we are. And I, and I think that's a great story. Yeah, that is. And it's a great, great wrap up. Boy, I, I want to say thank you for putting Dozen out there and for promoting it and, and all of that you're doing, Jeffrey. This has been a, a wonderful discussion. I really am glad you joined us. I don't know if you had one last parting uh, thing you wanted to say before we, we sign off, but... Uh... Yeah, I, I think one of the things in thinking about innovation and what's going to be needed is that we can't lose that spirit. We need people to think about breaking these these boundaries. We needed them to be doing, though, with another layer, right? Asking the question from a sustainability, from an impact standpoint. But the problems that we can't solve right now, that technology is around the corner. It may not be a corner that is close, but there is someone out there, and I think you know, this is why we do things like our Curiosity Cube or the Curiosity Labs, because there is some 14-year-old out there who has the answers to it. They just need to have an environment where that curiosity can be created, that they can build on it, and then they can explore it further. But there has to be a spark that happens somewhere. And we just need more and more people to keep asking tough questions and keep solving for these challenges. 
Well, I certainly can't follow that up. That is a tremendous, you're a tremendous role model and, and your enthusiasm is, is great. Jeffrey, if people wanted to kind of follow you or learn more about uh, what you're doing or what Dozen is or what Merck's doing, where can they go to kind of keep tabs on things? Yeah, so um, you can, of course, Google me and you'll find me on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Those are probably the two platforms that I use the most uh, to talk about it. But then also you can see all of the information. You know, one of the things I, and I mentioned this was transparency. We try to be very clear and transparent about the progress, but also the challenges. And you can do that by going to www.sigmaldrich.com backslash greener. All of the information is there about the work that we're doing and the progress. Oh, fantastic. And we'll, we'll make sure we have all that in our show notes. So, Jeffrey, wonderful talking to you. I really appreciate you joining us. And, and uh, I'm going to watch the space as well. And I hope you come back and join us again someday and kind of give us an update. We'd love to love to hear from you. Absolutely, Paul. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. I think this topic is one that there's going to be a lot more, hopefully, to talk about. So I'd love to I'd love to come back and follow up. Excellent. We'll do that. And to all our listeners, we thank you for joining us. It was really a, a fun session, and uh, we hope you have a great week ahead of you. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week for Innovation Talks with Paul Heller. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For additional information on today's topic, check out sophion.com, S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, where you will find plenty of innovation-centric content and corporate best practices. If you'd like to discuss anything with Paul or would like to get in touch with the show, email us at talks at sophion.com.